Lots of love and enthusiasm and interest in that first interview that we did with Roger Matara about nuclear fusion. Um, I inadvertently said bullshit. I think to do with that experiment, that half-baked experiment, as Rashi put it, that came out of Korea about a room temperature superconductor. And I was quite rightly taken to task. Stop using profane language on the radio. It's an interesting topic, ruined by your use of profane language. The people she interviews are better mannered and spoken quite right. I cannot argue with that. Furthermore, do not read the next book that I am about to discuss with its author. If you think bullshit is profane, you ain't seen nothing. Here's how the story starts. And jump out the whip, am I hitting the pavement? And it's this moment when you jump out of the car and it's too late to go back. When you know that you're definitely going to do it even though the way the adrenaline bursts through your body makes you wish for a second that you weren't here. And now we're creeping up the street. She's too far ahead of us. We got the timing wrong, but we can't run to catch up because that will alert her and she'll turn around. So we're creeping fast. The balaclava's hugging my face tight and I've also pulled my hood over it and I feel the adrenaline explode in the pit of my chest like a dying star. And it's like my entire body has turned into the pumping of my heart. What that's describing is a doorstep robbery which goes bad. The woman's Cartier watch won't come off her wrist. The ring won't come off even when our narrator breaks her finger. And then her husband drags her into the house and slams the door just as the attacker pulls her arm out. This is the book called Who They Was by Gabriel Krauser. It's an autobiographical novel about his immersion as a young man in London gang culture while simultaneously getting a BA in English literature. The book was nominated for the Booker in 2020. Gabriel Krauser is coming to Word Christchurch later this month. He says that it's all true, except for the bits that he's changed to protect himself and his friends legally. I asked him how it felt talking about this book for three years, basically. Does he still feel attached to those events? I feel invested in it artistically, but I don't feel invested in it from in, in the context of what the, the book describes, because that was simply my life. So it's very difficult for me to detach from it in an objective way and think about it the way other people think about it. So even just in the sense the way in which people find it shocking and aspects of it shocking. I don't find any of that shocking because that was just normality to me. When you live in that way and when you live in that context for so many years, it's, you know, there's, there's nothing about it that surprises you or, 
or that you find shocking. I think sometimes it's a bit difficult for me when I meet somebody for the first time and they ask me what my book is about um, and I don't know them. I find it a bit difficult to tell them. Yeah, what do you say? I say, um, when people ask me, what do I write? I say literature. And then, and then when they say, well, what do you write about? I say, I write about, I've written a book about my life growing up in London. It's a coming of age novel. That I'm quite, I'm quite evasive. Yeah. It is a coming of age novel, actually, yeah. but, but it's open-ended. So we don't see you come of age. I mean, getting it, you've said about it that what. No, no, you do because, no, because the end of the book is set in 2017. Yeah. So even though you've got your degree, it, yeah. you know, it didn't result in an instant transformation. There is no redemptive arc in this book. No. Let me put it like this, that anyone who seeks a redemptive arc in literature is somebody who's coming to literature in a completely dishonest way. And it's a huge problem that we have in literature right now. I don't know exactly about the New Zealand and the Australian literary scene, but I can definitely say this about a Brit- the British literary scene. There is a huge problem with readers coming to books with expectations and with desires for narratives and with desires for specific narratives. And it's a completely false and artificial way of engaging with literature. Literature is supposed to be art. When you go into an art gallery and you look at the paintings of an artist like Caravaggio or Bacon or Basquiat, you don't come there with a set of prerequisites that you have for how you engage with that art and how it affects you. You come there open to being affected by the work. Unfortunately, in literature, people are obsessed with these narratives that are redemptive or with narratives that give them hope and joy. And it's really it's becoming a tired regurgitation of, of a kind of unreality that people, for some reason, readers, a lot of readers, want to believe in a version of the world which simply doesn't exist. And it's a, it's a false kind of idealism as well because it means that we don't engage with challenging ideas. And my book is ultimately, you know, it's very easy for people to talk about my book as a narrative of a young man growing up in the context of violent Northwest London gang culture, which is what it's about, or rather that's the setting of it. But a book is really an investigation of morality and the ultimate message of, of the book is that morality is relative to the level of danger in which we live but you know people come to the book wanting or some people some people as well because i'm making a generalization of course but some people have come to the book and criticized it for not giving a redemptive arc and that's just a weakness on those readers parts that's that's nothing to do with me as an artist as a writer and that's also nothing to do with the reality of that world because the reality of that world is very very bleak yeah no Um, i take your point that we don't look at a Caravaggio or a Bacon and think, where's the happy ending in this? Um, But I suppose the difference in your book is that it describes a part of society that a lot of people find really difficult, including, you know, the woman that you attacked on that very first page to wrench the watch off and wrench the rings off. And, And we think, oh, my God, how can we make this less likely to happen. Is there an answer to that? The thing is, right, is I'm an author, I'm a writer. I see myself primarily as an artist. I'm not here to provide, you know, um, solutions for societal problems and societal inequalities. Um, I think 
people don't really engage with the idea of the nihilistic mindset that young men in gangs exist within because people always talk about um you know environments and they talk about them in terms of the physical environment that that a lot of young men who are involved in gang culture across the world whether it's in london new york paris whether it's in new zealand as well i'm sure there are young men um involved in gang culture look we're wrestling we're constantly wrestling with the gang problem is what we call it yeah yeah and the reason for that is because it's, a, it's as old as time. It's basically this. In, in, if you read the poetry of Homer, if you read the Iliad by Homer, there's this amazing passage when Achilles is about to go off to battle to fight the Trojans. And his mother says to him, listen, if you go off to battle, um, you're going to die in battle, but your name will live forever. But if you stay at home, you'll live till you're 125 years old and you'll have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But when you die, no one will remember your name. And in the blink of an eye, he says, I want to go to battle, I want to die, and I want my name to live forever. And it's the same mentality that a lot of young men in gang culture exist in. It's this need for power, it's this striving for reputation, for the striving to feel alive, if only for a short moment, but to feel fully alive and to embrace it and young men exist within this nihilistic psychological mindset it's a psychological environment as opposed to a physical environment because it's not as simplistic as saying oh it's just to do with poverty and deprivation it's also to do with the fact that some people are affected by their circumstances and by the way in which they view the world differently and they disconnect from other people who don't look at them the same way or or look at the world in the same way as them and so, we don't really investigate in society. We don't really investigate, you know, the, the psychological environment or the, or the philosophical makeup of these young men. We just talk about it in simplistic terms of, you know, poverty and crime. Well, I suppose because people don't want to believe that that young men are so easily drawn to the nihilistic. So we want to think, oh, well, it must be poverty or it must be dysfunction. And if we yeah. can make that better, then people will be nicer. I mean, it's true. The, the thing as well is I can't, I'm, I can't say that, you know, the, the philosophical aspect I'm talking about is, is the entire issue because, of course, poverty plays a huge part in it. I know, I know the, the part that it played in my life, but when I make a distinction in terms of the philosophical mind frame of, of young men in this environment, I had a twin brother. We both grew up in the same household. We both lacked for the same amount of things that like we both had the same materialistic lack because our parents didn't have a lot of money growing up they were both polish immigrants they were both in in, in a struggle as we were growing up as well my twin brother didn't turn to crime and wasn't sucked into the world of gangs and and all of that so there's a very distinctive difference there between two psychologies growing up in the same family affected in the same way but the one difference though that i would say is that he wasn't exposed to gang culture and violence the way that i ended up being exposed to it and of course that exposure happens on the street how how come he wasn't exposed is your twin brother was he in his bedroom playing his violin while you were out there yeah, or the living room, not the bedroom, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, literally, yeah. He was at home playing the violin and he left school when, when he was 16 years old. He left school, but he left school to literally play or practice the violin eight hours a day. No days off, Saturdays and Sundays included. And, and that's what he did. And he grew up in a very insular world and now he's an amazing, world-famous violinist. How did you quit the gang life in the end that is it's difficult to say because there's as no a line. young man 
there's no yeah there's no specific line like when you're when you're a young man like let's say when you're when you're a teenager and going into your 20s there's a certain culture of the world of gangs that you exist within where if you bump into rivals violence explodes very quickly there are certain feuds that you're involved in there are certain feuds as well that you're involved in unwittingly simply by being part of a certain group of people or being from a certain area or a certain block like you're involved in that stuff whether you like it or not and that's one of the the kind of most fatalistic aspects of that culture is that you don't have a choice in a lot of the situations because you've committed to that lifestyle and then there's there's this baggage that comes with it but as you get older when you go into your 20s and you you go into your you you go into your mid and late 20s you the only thing that really matters is making money so like all that petty street beef all that like stabbing your rivals going on shootings all that kind of stuff that that people did when they were in their teens and early 20s it's like you you go away from that because you know that that's either going to end in jail or death very quickly and really all you want is money and and it's it's a funny thing as well because people often talk about criminality within the context of liberal thinking and we think about how to like solve this problem without realizing that when it comes to selling drugs and and being a gang and basically being a gangster people wanting to be having that aspiration to be a gangster it's a form of like really ruthless capitalism where we realize the way in which you can have a better quality of life the way in which you can be more socially mobile is just basically to get money because it can't, money, though. but 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 it can't only be about if if I come to you when you were, I don't know, 20 and said, yeah. here's a million bucks, but you have to walk away from your gang. Yeah. What would you have said? Honestly, I don't know, because that's like a hypothetical scenario. So I, I, honestly, I, suppose I can't the, really. I suppose the point I'm making is that, the, you know, you talk about the adrenaline rush, you talk about the brotherhood. Yeah, yeah, and there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's the incident that, that it that brought you to the Young Offenders Institute, where you're on a crowded tube, some bloke um, nudges you inadvertently with his backpack, and you end yeah. up headbutting him. That wasn't about money either. No, no, no. But that's it. But this is the thing as well to do. With, first of all, when you're a young man, your threshold for exploding and for reacting violently in situations is lower. But there's also this thing where, like. If you if you exist within society where people look at you a certain way because of how you dress, how you talk, you know the accent, the slang that you use, or whatever, and people you could feel that sense of marginalization or you feel that sense of separation, you don't feel a sense of empathy and connectivity. You don't feel connected to wider society. It's very easy for people to say that gang members lack empathy for normal members of society. But let's not pretend that normal members of society, by and large, care about the lives and the minutiae of the lives and circumstances of young men trapped in cycles of crime and violence. Like They don't. So it's it's kind of like there's this total disconnect between human beings, between individuals. We all exist within our own bubbles. That incident that you referred to, it was like it was a flaring up in response to a hostile confrontation. And some people would just swear at a person who knocks them in the face with their bag. Um, and obviously, for me, the situation went left and went in a very different direction. And I'm not saying that as a justification or anything, and I'm not seeking to justify the lifestyle. But it's just, you know, if somebody if somebody says they can't understand why, you know, why a young man does does the things that I did, for example, or gets involved in that lifestyle that I was involved in, that's, you know, that's not for me to 
to try and make them understand it's like it's it's obvious that you can't understand it you didn't exist in that world you didn't grow up in that world i was 13 years old when i first saw somebody get stabbed right in front of me like literally a meter from me i was 13 years old and then the next time i saw somebody get stabbed up was two weeks later and it takes it basically it degrades your threshold for violence it degrades your threshold for being shocked by things and by before you know it you're very you know you're very inured to that you're very numb to that stuff and and where where it shocks other people it doesn't shock you like me personally i don't find my book shocking at all i have to be reminded by others that it's quite a shocking work because of the world that it, it opens a window onto so um, when you talk about young men being trapped in lives of crime and violence they're trapped by what if it's not poverty and if it's not dysfunction what are they trapped by but by multiple things it's never one thing mm. it's never one poverty is a single monolithic thing um you know i'll tell you as well another thing about poverty which people don't really discuss or talk about is shame it's the feeling of shame when you exist in poverty you know it's like some people experience it more acutely than others, but there's a feeling that, that comes with poverty, of shame, of being ashamed of not being able to have enough, of not being able to display a form of kind of materialistic success, especially when you live in a capitalist society. And I'm not saying this either in the sense that I'm anti-capitalist. Like, don't ever get it twisted. I want Rolexes. I want more diamond grills. Like, I, I like money. I like what I can get with money. I like eating in good restaurants, etc., etc. I would love to one day own a house. I'd love to buy... Danish mid-century furniture and and things like that you know it's like it's not that I'm saying this as some kind of diatribe against capitalism but there's there's a shame that comes with poverty but there's all sorts of social circumstances and psychological circumstances that people exist in it's never as simplistic as as one kind of overall factor is the people who look on our website will see a picture of you with the diamond grill in your teeth you mentioned the grill a little earlier can you talk me through that yeah it's like a social it's a it's a it's a status symbol basically. like a you know, like a like a mercedes or something is it yeah or like or like anyone who likes jewelry do you like jewelry do you wear jewelry not a lot no not, not the bling lot. not the bling sword it's the blingy thing we're talking about here isn't it diamond stuff yeah, I mean, it's a display of so it's a display of personal success in the sense. I I saw this for the first time. It's funny because now rappers, like a lot of rappers, wear diamond grills, and I see it in a lot of music videos. But in South Kilburn, when I first moved to South Kilburn when I was seventeen years old, I saw everyone on the block who was making money, getting money, selling drugs, and everything was had these diamond grills. And this is before the days of of like UK rappers and, and rappers in other countries wearing diamond grills. It was like a really unique thing to see. It was very niche. And there was only one place in London as well that you could get diamond grills. There was only one jeweler who was making them. It was a, it was a status symbol. And, you know, it's also something that's like, it's, it's interesting because it exists in this very dark environment, this environment of brutalist concrete towers. It's very ugly. It's grim, you know. Um, and then you suddenly have this, these these diamonds flashing in, in faces and there's something beautiful about it as well and that's one of the things that I tried to capture as well in my writing is while this is a bleak world and a world with with kind of bleak mentality and everything there's there's moments of beauty within it and and there are things within it that can be perceived as beautiful is there any way that you'd ever get your diamond grill removed what do you mean removed we're taken taken away taken away but how 
It's well, a grill, like you clip it in. Yeah, but it's, what? It's not my permanent. So it's not built into your teeth. It's something that you. No, 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 no. No, 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 it's popped in. It's oh, like you didn't have to go to the dentist for it? No, 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 no. Gotcha. No. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no, it's not permanent, no. Ah, it's no, like a brace. It's like a diamond brace. inconvenient for eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's ah. like a brace, yeah. I'm talking to Gabriel Krauser, whose book, Who They Was, was long-listed for the booker in 2020. Um, did your parents... I suppose. Your parents must have read the book, right? Of course, of course. And how did how did they deal with it? Well, like one of the biggest, one of the most powerful moments for me, honestly, in terms of my parents' reaction, was my mother's reaction because I wondered how she'd react to it. And she I just remember her saying to me that she was shocked by how true it was. Like she was shocked by how true it was mm. and how truthful it was and how truthfully I wrote about myself, about family, about and about the life that I was involved in and everything. And then she actually like made her remember a lot of things which she she started telling me about. And it was it was a very powerful moment to to hear that from her in particular because it's also like I'm not I don't sugarcoat things and. I mean, there were there were a lot there were a lot of things in the book when when it comes to writing about my life. There are a lot of things that I held back or or that I kind of didn't write about because I didn't want to to expose those aspects of my life and certain aspects of family dynamics and so on. But um, what she read of it and and how she felt about it was that she was shocked by how truthful it was, and that mm-hmm. was a big compliment. I, there are parts in this book where I wonder. How you would define a psychopath? I don't know. I'm not a clinical psychologist. Because when you talk about no remorse, I mean, shortly after that opening incident, the incident that you opened the book with, where, you know, you break the woman's finger to get the ring off and then you... Where the character, where the character breaks the woman's finger to get the ring off. Ah, okay. Nevertheless... I'm yeah. thinking when somebody has no remorse about something like that, would not that make them a psychopath? I mean, I don't know because again, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know if that would make them a psychopath, but but equally it's like do people care? Do you do you care about strangers who pass you by in the street? Do you remember what they look like? Do you remember anything about them? You don't. It's a natural human thing we're trapped in our own bubbles where only the things that are relevant to us and only the things that matter to us truly matter to, you know, truly matter to us. And when it comes to criminality and everything, and the concept of remorse is something that is is actually related to, like, Judeo-Christian moral codes. And those codes are not the original codes which human beings live to. One thing that I would say the book relates to, and this is a very important thing about my work, because... I don't want it to be perceived as an exploration of criminality in in that simplistic sense. And it's very easy for us to just discuss it in terms of crime and problems of crime. But let's talk about it in terms of Nietzsche and morality, because that is what it's about. There's a quote in the genealogy of morality where Nietzsche says, it is the meaning of all culture to breed a tame and civilized animal out of the beast of prey man. And these young men and young men involved in crime are the beasts of prey who haven't had that instinct bred out of them by culture, by civilization, by society. They've retained some of that animalistic element within them. So 
discussing matters of remorse and that that's like a that's part of a different moral code and again like i said in in the beginning the book is about how morality is relative to the level of danger in which you live if you live in a in a different context that's much more dangerous your moral code is completely different remorse doesn't come into play because if you if you were burdened by remorse every time you did something bad you'd be incapable of living within that world it's also that we have these barriers you know we numb our senses to certain things and that's not again i'm not justifying that but this is for you to understand like how you know the codes of morality and, and the context of how empathy operates in this world is very different to, you know, the larger society. I don't know whether you have children, do you? No, I don't have children. If you if you were to have kids, say if you were to have a son, yeah. is is there something that you would do to try to get the beast of prey out of him or prevent the beast of prey from becoming dominant? Like it's it's difficult for me to say because of course I wouldn't want my son to to go down the route of criminality and to because the other thing as well the, the tragedy of of criminality in young men is that largely the results are self destructive in the end um, and a lot of it ends with wasted lives um, but what I would say is is the most powerful thing you know people often talk about you know, what can be done to help kids who are influenced, you know, or live in environments with negative influences like this. And people always talk about, you know, getting ex-gang members to come and talk to them and stuff. And I always say that's a total waste of time. No one cares about ex-gang members who failed to make it big. Like everyone thinks when they're young that they're going to be Scarface and they forget how the movie ends and, you know, that it ends badly for him and everything. What I would say is the, the greatest thing, the most powerful thing that can take you away from the brink is art. Art is the closest thing to God. It's the closest way in which we we get to God or the idea of of what God could be or what God is, whether you're religious or not. And art can save somebody because it, it engages their imagination and it takes them somewhere else. So I would I would expose my child from as early as possible to art. But you were, you know, weren't you? I was, I was, and and but I'm an anomaly, I think, in in certain elements as well, because I'm also an anomaly in terms of writing. You know, I I care deeply about the art of literature, but I was also, you know, deeply involved in gang culture. I've never met a writer like me, and I don't mean that in in some egotistical sense. Like, I also don't believe that I'm a particularly good writer, to be quite frank with you. I don't think the book is particularly good, but that's a personal artistic agony. Like, I could get the Nobel Prize for Literature for this book tomorrow, and I would just laugh. Like, I would just say, right, you you lot don't really understand what great literature is, because <laughs> I don't believe it's a great work of literature. Right. It's a personal agony. It's a personal artistic agony. But I think I'm an anomaly in that sense, and, and it's difficult that is also difficult for me to deal with personally on a personal level I struggle with it I feel very much an outsider in the literary world and and yet on the other hand I do nothing to become part of the literary world or to be included because I have no interest in in conforming to type and I have no interest in in cliques and everything ultimately for me as well sorry I just quickly want to add this because I I don't want to be going off on a tangent but I think it's really important in terms of talking about art and literature to remember that art is is about the work. It's not really about the artist himself. That's a kind of a, an extra thing that we can become interested in with time. We can become interested in the life of the artist and how it relates to the artist. But really, we should think about what Heidegger, the German philosopher, said about the artist 
the artist should be like a door which destroys itself in the process of revealing the work of art behind it so that all that's left for us to experience is the work of art and we no longer engage with the idea of who the artist was or you know the circumstances of his life i wanted to talk to you briefly about um rap and hip-hop because i know that you were quite an admired rapper maybe still are and it's Hip-Hop's 50th anniversary, we're doing an interview about that later on. Um, yeah. I wondered if you had any comment to make about about what that music meant in terms of your milieu. Well, it's like, the thing is, is I still write rap lyrics. I still write rap lyrics and everything. I just never ended up having a career because my life went in a different direction. And funnily enough as well, when when I was younger and we were all rapping and I could have decided to be a rapper, the moment when I decided to stop to stop trying to be a rapper was because I realized that all the other, a lot of other guys around me who are rappers, especially, especially funnily enough, the really good ones, they were fake. Like the stuff they were rapping about, they weren't really living that lifestyle. And because I was living that lifestyle that they were rapping about, I kind of got fed up of it. And now I realized that was a mistake because rap is another art form. It's a form of expression. It's a, it's a form of poetic expression, basically. Um, and I think it's a very powerful art form. I think it's a very beautiful art form. And I think if you look at some of the the really great rappers, like if you think about certain rappers like Nas and Jay-Z, but even more contemporary rappers, like there's a, a group that I listen to from America called Griselda. Um, it's three, uh, two brothers and a cousin. They're called Westside Gun, Conway and Benny the Butcher. Like you can tell that these guys are intelligent. You can tell that these guys have an intellectual way with which they approach rapping and with which they approach writing lyrics and, and how they envision and, and convey their world to the listener. So, yeah, I think it's a very important art form. It's tricky, though, isn't it? I mean, rap has got a bad rap among some people call them middle class liberals, if you like because in some of its forms, it's deeply misogynistic, deeply yeah. violent. And, yeah. and I'm wondering whether you think that that's as much of an art form as any other form of rap. Well, the thing is, right, is, is applying these moralistic kind of, applying these moralistic analyses, I, I understand where they come from. But the thing is, is it's misogynistic and it's violent because the world of, of the streets and street culture is misogynistic and violent like that's just the reality and that's the truth and when people say they want authenticity i always think about this especially in the literary scene there was this big push in the british literary scene a few years ago especially in, in 2020 during the pandemic i remember there was this moment when all the publishers were saying we want to hear more authentic voices we want authentic voices <laughs> but they don't mean they don't really mean they want authentic voices across yeah. the board they want versions of authenticity that tick boxes for them um, that tick moralistic boxes for them that also tick boxes in terms of like there's all these buzzwords and everything you know like people talk about you, you can see like a hundred books getting published now every year which are like powerful explorations quote unquote powerful explorations of identity and, and family powerful explorations of love hope and gender powerful explorations it's, it's all just buzzwords it's just a, a, a vomiting up of regurgitated buzzwords that are endlessly recycled and there's no truth in in the desire for authenticity because there's so many versions of authenticity that are very dark, that are very pessimistic, that are very nihilistic, very uncompromising. And actually, you realize when you're creating that kind of work, as I have with my own work, 
that you're kind of not wanted when when it comes to those industry people because they're scared of anything that forces them to confront that darker aspect of human existence and and the world we live in. However, however, Gabriel... To say about your thing about rap, I would say that, like, I totally understand where that criticism comes from, Uh but often, often that aspect of it comes from a reflection of the reality. Yeah, but, you know, you talk about being an outsider and an outlier and being spurned by the middle classes who don't want to hear, but you've done all right. You have been hailed as a huge literary force. I mean, that's really nice. Like, that's really <laughs> nice. That, <laughs> no, it's really nice for you to say that to me. Like, I really appreciate that. And when people say, you know, when people say that they're affected by my writing or they think that I'm a really good writer, like, I, I feel almost embarrassed by it because I don't think I am that good and and it humbles me no but the point the point i'm making is that that you're saying you know all this authenticity they call for it but then they find out it frightens the horses so they say oh tone it down but but people aren't saying that to you people are saying you know we really love this book we're going to put it on the booker list it's but no, no, no. But, but being you know, being longlisted for the Booker was the one-off amazing moment that happened in my career. I've I haven't been invited. You know, I haven't been invited to more than one book festival in the United Kingdom. I've only ever been invited to one book festival in the UK. The South Bank Centre in the UK puts on constantly the London Literary Festival. I'm I'm the one writer who's written a book in the last ten years that's seriously about London, where the 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 entire character of London is at the centre of the book, and I don't get invited to these things, and I know why. I know why I don't get invited to these things. Because of who I am and because of what I've written, because what I write doesn't provide this fluffy, idealistic version of the world where it's like, oh, I write about hope and joy and there's redemption and and there's tenderness and all this stuff. No, I write this this raw stuff from the streets and I write what it's really like. And and it hasn't translated into sales. I'm not a best-selling author. What, you know, what's best-selling in the UK is, is basically mediocre writing, masquerading as literature because it ticks certain boxes for the industry and everything. So no, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm a successful writer in that sense. I think the critical engagement that that occurred with my work was something amazing and it's something that I you know that I don't underappreciate for one minute and being being long listed for the booker was absolutely amazing. It was it was a, a landmark moment for me, but it hasn't translated into success. If I'm quite frank with you, in fact, if I'm quite frank with you now, I live I currently live in poverty. I live in government housing. Like I, I, I have a backlog of rent to pay. Like I, I owe the tax man money. Like I, when I go shopping for food, I have to buy the cheapest products possible because I, I need to watch the pennies because I've stepped away from the streets. I know how to get money in the streets, but I stepped away and decided to devote myself entirely to writing and nothing has happened for me financially. Like I haven't been financially successful at all. I haven't, I haven't even earned one royalty check from sales of my books. So you know, in that sense of success, if we're talking about it as if it's like the masses are running to read my book. No, they're not running. To but it's fine. But it's fine. This is not a complaint as well. I don't want anyone. No, I understand the point you're making. How irritated would you be if I suggested to you that you could sell your grill? How irritated would I be? I wouldn't be irritated. <laughs> but but you know what? This is a thing. It's like. This is the other thing is, you know, I've got a Rolex, I've got iced out grills and everything. It's like those things that I would, you know, I would probably end up being homeless and still keeping those things because there are some things that are symbols of your own success and, 
and your achievement and 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 that make you feel that you've done something and selling those things would be to kind of get rid of those things that remind you because don't don't forget as well the iced out grills and the rolex and whatever that's not from book money i never bought those things you know because i sold you know because i got a publishing deal or whatever I, I, those are those are the last traces of my past life so they don't just have the materialistic status symbol attached to them for me they also hold a much deeper symbolism which is about this life that i stepped away from but on another level will always exist within me mm. what are you working on at the moment at the moment i'm working on my second novel and um Originally, it was uh, an exploration of the suffering of unfulfilled revenge. And that was going to be based on a personal experience of, of something that happened to me and the, the desire for revenge that came as a result of what happened to me and the way in which that revenge became an unfulfillable goal and how that affects me, because it's something that affects a lot of a lot of people, especially a lot of young men. And I think in, it's important to write about this in today's environment when people discuss masculinity and have all these kind of definitions of masculinity without necessarily knowing what it's like to be one of these young men um, existing in that way. And then what I wanted to write for the coda of the book was about the war in Ukraine, because I also want to attack victimhood culture in my book. I want to attack this culture that we have of using words like trauma and violence in this very hyperbolic way. These, these terms have now become overused and are almost almost now being used as like commercial selling points in in all sorts of avenues and especially among writers like writers love talking about their trauma and stuff when a lot of them don't even have a clue what real trauma is so i wanted to write about a war in ukraine um as i saw on instagram that a special forces soldier in a unit called kraken had posted a picture of my book and his gun and he he'd posted on instagram reading gabriel krauser on the front line so I contacted him. I asked him if he'd be willing to to do an interview with me if I came to Kiev. So I went to Kiev. This, this is a long story short because it took quite a lot of effort to get there because, you know, you can't fly in. The airspace is closed. But I got into Kiev. I went and I met a bunch of guys from special forces units. I interviewed them. And then I ended up, this was only supposed to be for, for basically like a week or 10 days. I ended up actually going and spending, I met, I met a lot of people. I was invited to come and stay on the hospitaliers, um, bar the barracks of the hospitaliers battalion in Pavlograd in the east, I ended up doing medevacs of wounded soldiers from the front line, and then I actually ended up going to a position on the front, and I was billeted in a house um, in 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 the Donbass region, and it was that was that was a very extreme experience. You know, I was like wearing body armor, and we were getting shelled and stuff, and. I was basically taking part in medevacs of, of soldiers who were getting brought from the trenches um, injured. And then, you know, the team that I was with, they were basically rushing them to hospital. And so I, I wrote a, a journal. I kept a journal. I was there basically for two months. I ended up spending two months in Ukraine. What was supposed to be like a week interviewing soldiers in, in Kiev turned up turned into a whole different adventure. So now I'm, I've decided to put that into my book. And I would say maybe 70% of the book is actually going to be about what I saw and what I experienced in Ukraine. Good grief. I wondered, just thinking about your, you know, coming of age years in London, what you thought the role of warfare is? Uh, it's a, it's, that's a very interesting question and a really good question. And and I feel like just, just to say, it's like people should, <laughs> people should discuss these things more. You know, I think we are too used to kind of simplistic 
and repetitive discussions. What is the role of war? I don't know because, you know, I had this intense experience in Ukraine where I saw the death of youth in front of me, you know, the, the collective death of youth, of, of especially of young Ukrainian men um, taking place because even all the men who survive it are going to be marked by those experiences for life. And there are also a lot of them are very numb to it. Like they, 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 they just see it as like, I remember one guy saying that war is like work. Once you, once you've experienced battle, you realize that war is like work. And I can't challenge that. And I can't say he's wrong about that because I, I never went into battle or anything like that. So I'm not in a position to say he's right or wrong about that. But I think, I think war narrows the focus and I think that in the past Europe had this cycle of constantly having wars I can say definitely about Europe like every every century had its had its wars and in fact every generation had its wars and it would kind of shape society in a certain way where people would maybe appreciate or value the things that they have at home better or they would value peace more and they would they would appreciate the smaller things because it really did make me, you know, appreciate the smaller things about my life. Um, but I would say that I would say that the one thing I can say that I took away from going to Ukraine and seeing the war in that visceral, first-hand way is it narrows the focus, like it narrows your focus and about what really matters and what's important in life. I worry about you a bit because. I understand the power of adrenaline and the addictive power of adrenaline. And I'm not sure you're going to get it from devoting yourself to literature. But that's that's very interesting. You don't need to, to worry about me. That's very nice that you worry about me, though. But I would say about literature is this. Literature for me is, is a need. It's not something that I do for fun. Like, I don't... I, of course, I enjoy it, but I think enjoyment is the wrong word when it, when it comes to me, at least, to talking about literature. Literature is an absolute need. If I if I don't write, I suffer, and I mean that seriously. If I don't write, if I go for two weeks without writing anything, I will literally be suffering because it's something that that is within me, and it's so strongly within me. It has such a strong need to come out of me that it's just something that I need to do. Like I could, I could never publish a book again, and I would still write books because it's something that I need to do. And I think it's for me as well. It's a deadly serious occupation. Um, but for me as well, as much as adrenaline is important in the sense that, or maybe I wouldn't say adrenaline is important, but as much as adrenaline has been a certain aspect of my life, and yeah, I miss certain feelings or rushes of adrenaline for me the greatest thing is art the thing that I aspire to to try and do or to try and accomplish with my life is is to create something that that could be considered a work of art I don't think I've managed to do that either yet and that's what I'm aspiring to do and and that's one of the biggest things that fuels me is wanting to to write more literature and to to one day write a, a book that could be considered great or or at least good and that was Gabriel Krauser. I spoke to him yesterday. His book's called Who They Was. And he'll be here for the Christchurch Word Festival later this month. You'll find a link to his events on our webpage. A massively polarising interview, as you can imagine. I may have time to read some of your texts. Thank you for all of them later in the programme.